So a question for you this morning is, when you think about what you believe spiritually, not math or science or history or all those things there, but what you believe spiritually, how would you rank your confidence in what you believe? Is it strong? Is it eh? Or is like, I'm not sure? Or somewhere in between all those things? And I would encourage you to, it's important you think about those things. Um, I'll share a little bit from my heart with you this morning to start with. Um, I do this week after week, stand up here and preach and do this and do all kinds of stuff during the week and work with other leaders and stuff to help lead the church and hopefully it's what God wants it to be for you guys and what he wants it to be for our community and for our world to reach out. Um, but if you want to know what I really, really want for you, as, as your pastor, God's called me to, to shepherd the flock. You say, what does that mean? Because it's like sheep, and I don't know anything about sheep very much really or anything of shepherding. I did do some farming when I was younger, but what does it mean to shepherd? Well, he's called me to look after the people that call Grace Community Church their own, to feed, to protect, and to lead. And who does that include? That includes people who partake of what the church has to offer. And I guess I want to broaden your, your thinking about what does church involvement mean? You know, we'd love to have people here regularly and involved in the ministries and serving and all those things there. But on any given week, we have people that do those things. But we also have people that just like, there'll be people today that'll just tune in and listen that have never been in the building and may never have been in the building. Um, other people may hear recordings sometime out there. But my heart is just as much for that person as it is for the person who here every single Sunday. And I want, uh, and, and God's called me to do those things. I want you to all to experience the joy and the peace and the satisfaction that I know comes from walking in a real and growing relationship with Jesus. Uh, it's a big deal. Um, we don't show up here and I don't do what I do and you don't come here by chance or just to fill time. All of us have other things we could be doing. What I really want is for you to have this vibrant, growing, real relationship with God through Jesus that you can't get enough of, that you're compelled to continue to drive after. And I, I want you to experience up here on the wall, if you haven't, up here on the, on the stage, you see all these little blocks with all kinds of words on them. Back around Christmas time, we did a series of messages as the greatest gift ever given. And that greatest gift is salvation. And we oftentimes, you remember, we look at it like this. We look at forgiveness of sin and getting to go to heaven. But that's a very small, small portion of the fullness of salvation. What you have up here, it does include being forgiven of your sin. And it does include being able to go to heaven and spend eternal life with Jesus for all, forever. But there's so much more. And my heart for you is that you'll experience not just the forgiveness of sin and not just getting to go to heaven, but you will experience even here on earth the fullness of salvation that will culminate when, when you see Jesus face to face. And see, to the degree that we start to experience the fullness of salvation as we walk on this earth, our anticipation of heaven only grows. You say, well, man, I'm pretty excited about that. But I'm telling you, the more that you start to walk in the fullness of what God has for you here on earth, the fullness of salvation, 
You can't believe it. It blows your mind to think about when I get, and I think about this often, when I see Jesus, I'm not one of those ones saying, I'm going to ask him five questions. Not at all. I can't wait for the moment I cross from this life into next. My faith will be sight, and all of a sudden my eyes and my understanding will be open to a whole new level of the fullness of all that God has. Not just with here on earth and reflecting back on it, but what he has in store for all of eternity. To see his magnificence, his glory, his power, his strength, for real, face to face. And I want the same for you. Um, I want you to have great confidence in what you believe. Confidence that's not based on your emotion and how you feel. Confidence that's not based on cultural norms or what the culture believes. It's not based on human reasoning, something that can be taught in a class, or your ability to think through things, not based on those things, but based on biblical truth. I want you to have a confidence in what you believe spiritually that is firmly rooted in what God has to say in his word. And I labor long and hard over these things. Labor long and hard to see it happen to you. Just this week, if you know me, most of you don't know me that well, but I am not much of a morning person. It's not that I hate mornings, but I'm not the one, as Jeff jokes about the different time, and I can look at different people, which I won't, that are like, you know, 4.30 or 5, that's the best time of the day. And you know, 4.30 or 5 is when I should be looking at the back of my eyelids a little longer. Um, but anyhow, I had, and this doesn't happen to me, my wife would attest to this, it doesn't happen very often, but on, I think it was Thursday of this week, I woke up at 4.30, and, which is not uncommon, but I couldn't go back to sleep. I tried. I sat there and closed my eyes and tried to relax, but nothing was happening. So about 5 to 5.15-ish, I did the rare thing. I just got out of bed. And I have been around long enough to know when those things happened, and as I was laying in bed trying to fall back asleep, I had different things going through my mind, spiritually speaking. And I was like, okay, God. We'll get up and we'll see what you have to say. And he took me to some scriptures to me that were a great encouragement to me and a great challenge to me, things that were shared with me as a young man when I was in my early 20s, 20, 21, 22, when I was prepping for ministry and, and the call of God. I had been called, but the call was starting to take shape and form. And he reminded me of some of the things that he's called me to do and reminded me afresh to give myself to those things. And, you know, and I already had this message all prepared before Thursday. And I'm thinking that, you know, I realize already that I work long and hard to see these things happen in you, that your confidence would grow through being able to preach and teach and share with you and hopefully model what a, a life serving God looks like. And I work at it. And, you know, the other thing that happens too is we have a leadership team at church, whether it be the elders, but even beyond that, all the way to home group leaders and Sunday school teachers and indirectly, I work with a lot of those people, some directly, some indirectly. All of that, do you realize? And I found myself praying that this morning as we're coming from my house here, praying, Lord, can you use the service this morning, the Sunday school time, the scripture, the, 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 the preaching, even the worship, can you use that to impart truth to every age group that will help them become more confident in what they believe? that they would actually gain information about you, God, and who you are and what you're about, and then learn how to apply that so that they can have that strong, strong belief. I want you to be able to answer a strong yes to that question. Do you believe that what you believe is really real when it comes to spiritual things? 
Do you believe that what you believe is really real? Again, not because of human reasoning or cultural norms, but because you've built your life on the solid rock, Jesus Christ. And even if you don't fully understand everything intellectually, there's something in your heart because of the commitment you've made to Christ and putting these things into practice that you know what you know is true. And you could have somebody look you square in the face and saying, that's not real, or that doesn't make logical sense, or trying to discuss or, or give you evidence to the contrary, and you would simply say, you can say whatever you want, but I'm not budging. And not because of stubbornness, because deep down inside that you really do believe that what you believe, spiritually speaking, is real. You and I need to be firm in our faith and our beliefs. We need to have that. Increasingly in our times, Christian beliefs, and I even hesitate using that because it sounds very churchy, but biblical, biblical truth and the belief in that is being challenged at an alarming rate in our culture today. It's ramping up. It seems to be mounting by the month, by the year, getting, getting a stronger challenge against biblical truth. It's easy these days, even as a follower of Christ, to fall into questioning biblical truth. And the reason I say that is there are major supposed Christian universities that actually in their coursework actually challenge literal biblical truth and try to make it subjective. That's in, in supposedly the best of the best with the learned people in Christian circles. Churches regularly teach, unfortunately. Heaven forbid that ever happens here. But a lot of churches teach doctrine in such a way that it challenges and causes people to question authentic biblical truth. It makes it easy for a person who believes they're on the right track to actually, instead of growing stronger in their belief in what the Bible has to say, and actually weakening that and saying, well, it's got to be subjective, or maybe it changes. And that shouldn't be. That shouldn't be. You and I now more than ever need to be firm in our belief. Because if we're not firm in what we believe spiritually speaking, we will be tossed around by the storms and the waves of life, all the things that come culturally, all the things that come in our world, and we will be anything less than stable. Now more than ever, what is needed in our world today are people who are rock solidly sure of what they believe in, standing on the true rock, Jesus Christ. And no matter what happens around them, no matter what question, no matter what challenge, whether it be physical or an intellectual challenge comes, they stand up in the face of that and are not afraid to say, I still believe what I believe and I'm not going to budge. I'm telling you, that kind of belief, not cockiness, not um, um, great necessarily even reasoned out stuff, although that's important, but I mean this, this stand where I will not budge because I know what I know, and I've actually proven it to be true in my life, is very appealing to the world we live in. Because as much as our culture wants to say that they've got it figured out and are progressing, people more than ever need solid truth that you can base your life on that sticks and works. Because our culture, I'm telling you, when people go to bed at night and think through and have sold out to the things that the world has told them, there's this nagging feeling inside saying it's not working. It's not working in my private life. 
you and I need to be firm in what we believe. Because currently there's a lot roaring and being tossed around that challenges that. And I'm going to tell you that I believe there's more coming. I don't think it's going to get better. Actually, if you read your Bible, it says as the time gets closer, it gets worse. It gets worse as it gets closer. The challenges are stronger to authentic biblical faith. The challenges to biblical truth get stronger. More and more people poo-poo it, say it's, not, it's nothing, it's old-fashioned, it's not relevant anymore. It doesn't even make sense. It's been proven to be false. Now more than ever, it is so important, and I'm telling you, times are coming, and you're going to continue to be challenged. Don't fall into the trap of just hoping that this is all going to pass and going to change or that humans will figure it out. Humans have been trying to figure it out for 6,000 years and still don't have it figured out. Because the figuring out is only found when we walk in solid, strong faith and belief in Jesus Christ and God's ways. Outside of that, you'll never figure it out. Like I said, I believe in my heart of hearts, and it's only growing that it's going to get harder and even harder to devote yourself to true biblical truth as our culture disintegrates. It's only going to get harder. And if you don't work now at solidifying what you believe in and your confidence in biblical truth, it will be very easy for you to stray and not even know it. Because as the culture gets farther and farther away from God, it's easy again to just kind of follow, maybe not directly with the culture, but a few steps behind it, which takes you away from where God would have you be and away from eternal life. Um, This week... Um, someone gave me a, a word that God had given them. Um, I believe it's very fitting, fitting considering the message that God placed on my heart. Now, you've got to look back on this. This message was supposed to be preached, well, supposed to be. From my perspective, my plan, original plan, this message would have been preached last week. But I came down with COVID and was homesick. And so Jeff did a very good, good job of pinch hitting for the sermon, but also for the funeral. And so this message I had preached, was a, this is the last thing I did before I got the fever and the chills and the aches and all that stuff there. I went up in my study uh, a week ago Thursday, and I was studying and prepping this message out. I got the outline done, and as I'm finishing the outline, I'm feeling like, I think I've been sitting in my chair too long because my body's starting to ache. And then there's a part of me saying, no, I sit a lot longer in the chair of studying, and I don't get aches. Something else is going on, and within an hour or two after I broke for lunch, full-blown ache from head to toe, even to the point where my knuckles hurt. <laughs> That's when you know when you've got bad joint pain is when your knuckles actually hurt. So. But enough of that said. So I had planned on preaching this, and then that whole thing is tabled. I figured, well, that's okay. I'll just share it the next week then. And then on um, the timing of that, being homesick last week, not sharing the message, Jeff amply filled in and did a great job with that, and I was thankful for that. It's interesting how God worked in his life to prep him for that. We talked Thursday, we were just saying, talk Thursday morning, how God actually works by His Spirit. If you ever wonder if that stuff is real, how He leads and directs and equips by His Spirit. And Jeff told me he woke up Thursday morning feeling like, hmm, I think I got an idea for a sermon on my mind and I'm okay. So we texted back and forth. He said, so if something does happen, I'll be ready to go. And I thought, well, I'm still okay. About three hours later, I'm like, I'm not okay. It's all on you. But God had already begun to work in him to prep that. Okay, so the word that came, though, came Monday night of this week. So if I had preached the message last week, which was according to my plan, this wouldn't have come out, okay? 
So I take real serious note of that. When this came out, the person shared it via email, and I was looking through it and that kind of stuff there, and I saw immediately, like, wow, that is profound considering what's the message going to be. And I say that, I say again, God's trying to get my attention and get your attention. The question is, are we listening, or are we stubbornly just going, on? Oh, it's just coincidence, no such thing. Too many things have happened in the last two weeks again, and then God just sporadic, just, just by chance, you say? No, not by chance. Wake somebody up in a dream to share this. Now let me read this to you. This, this came last, this Monday night. Stand firm in your beliefs. Don't let anyone sway what you know is right. Don't waver from the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. His word is firm and His promises are true. He's faithful to those who are faithful to Him. He will protect us from those who want to tear us down. Don't compromise. Stand on the truth of His word and be strong in the Lord. I'm going to read it one more time. Stand firm in your beliefs. Don't let anyone sway what you know is right. Don't waver from the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. His word is firm and His promises are true. He's faithful to those who are faithful to Him. He will protect us from those who want to tear us down. Don't compromise. Stand on the truth of His word and be strong in the Lord. And... You know, my question, do you believe that what you believe is really real? That had been prepared before this came. The things I just shared from my heart were on paper, in my mind, that God had spoken before the word came here. And the idea there that how important it is for you to have a firm belief and confidence in what you believe, spiritually speaking, that's based on God's truth. Okay? Now, in the midst of that, that's all kind of introductory stuff. It's all good things there. Hopefully God has your attention. And now we want to take a look at some scriptures. And this, is, this message came, and, and this is how God often works in me to prep, to give a message or a direction to go in, is a scripture came to mind three, four weeks ago. And I was still doing the idea of finishing up the perfect love, which if you didn't catch the capstone on that one, the urgent action required, please get to our YouTube channel, go to the website, listen to that. There's actions that's required in this perfect love. Now moving on in that, though, I thought the next thing was this. And there's an, there's an old hymn that actually, the, main, the chorus, the main line in the chorus is actually a scripture. And it goes, I know whom I have believed, for he is, what, able I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Well, that's a scripture. It's a scripture that actually Paul, uh, Paul penned, the Apostle Paul. Now, a little bit about the Apostle Paul. Okay, and this idea that I know whom I believe, the Apostle Paul. Okay, Paul was raised a Jewish man. Okay, he, it, being a Jewish man, young man, uh, being raised that way, he would have been taught and trained about God from the time that he could remember all the way through adulthood. It would have been taught Bible stories, taught biblical truth. Um, he would have been memorizing Old Testament scripture, all those things. He was taught and trained. Um, he would have also practiced the Jewish worship and tradition from young on up, from little on up. You know, he would have had, as we've watched a little bit of The Chosen, he would have gone through those Shabbat, the, the Sabbath celebrations. He would have gone through Passover. He would have gone through all those festivals. He would have done all that stuff, the weekly, the weekly Sabbath and, and the yearly festivals. He'd have, done, he'd have done all that and taught and trained and seen that as the norm. 
As he grew to be a young man, he was also trained a, a step further, trained as a Pharisee to be a not a religious leader, but a, a scholar, if you will, of, 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 uh, of the Old Testament truth. He would have been trained in that. He, he, he became an expert, an absolute expert in God's law. He was trained by the best teachers of the time. We know that by reading in Scripture when he talks about his own training. Paul was taught by the best of the best in his time about God's law and God's truth. Paul also, before his conversion, was very, very zealous for God. Even though he was a little, he was, as we look now, from a Christian perspective, was off track, from Paul's perspective, all that stuff that he did pre-Christ, persecuting the church, going after people, and feeling that, that, that this new Christian sect was a, a, was a, was a threat, it was because he was zealous for God, jealous for God. He saw Christianity as a cult, a blasphemous departure from the true worship of God as he understood it, the way he'd been trained and taught. He gave everything that he had to follow God's laws. And then he sought to punish any Jew who converted to Christianity. And, and I want you to catch this about Paul. It wasn't that he was an evil man. He believed that this is what God was calling him to do. And if you read in the book of Acts, he's saying, how could he? Because he was that firmly entrenched in his traditional teaching and what God's law had to say. And now you've got this new truth, this supposed new truth that this Jesus guy had taught and, the, and, and Jews are, are converting and following it. He, he couldn't have anything to do with that because it, 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 just, it just rocked his world. But then... In the midst of all that, he meets Jesus. We call it his Damascus Road experience, because where did it happen? On the road to Damascus. He's going, what's he doing? He's en route to Damascus to what? To go to find Jews who had converted to Christianity, to arrest them, and bring them back to Jerusalem for punishment. That's what he was going to do. On the way, you see, Jesus saw Paul's heart, saw the zealousness, saw the fact that he was sold out to God and trying to do within his power what he understood or thought was right and was actively pursuing that. Jesus saw that zealous heart for God and Jesus himself shows up while he's on the Damascus road and reveals himself to Paul. You see, it says a bright light. He is struck down. And when he's down... He's amazed at what's going on, and Jesus actually talks to him and says, Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? And he says, who art thou, Lord, who's talking to me? He says, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Got his attention. And he began to realize that this Jesus was exactly who the Christian said he was, and he saw him face to face. And Jesus loved him and cared enough for him and saw those things there, and he was converted. And Paul's life is drastically changed in that moment of time. It isn't it amazing, and a lot of you know this firsthand, how when you come to Christ, how your life instantaneously, dramatically changes. And when it's a true conversion, the test of that is like Paul. Paul does not 180, but definitely you know 120. He starts heading in a totally different direction than he was before. Instantaneously. Immediately. 
It wasn't this long, thought-out process. Jesus got his attention, revealed himself to it, and he makes his decision, this is who I'm going to follow. His life has drastically changed, but you know what never did change? He had the same zeal for God after that he did before. Now it's just in the right direction. He keeps that zeal. Now he's following, though, the teachings of Jesus and teaching others. Paul gave his life to tell other people about what it meant to walk in a real relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The very people that he was persecuting because they had a relationship with Jesus, now he's going around the whole then known world telling anybody that will listen to him, listening to the Spirit of God and leading, telling people how to walk in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Another thing about Paul, it wasn't all that glamorous. We think it was a wonderful thing. It was not. It was tough. Paul suffered a great deal because of his belief in Jesus Christ that was unshakable. Take a look at what he writes in 2 Corinthians. He starts out and says, Are they Hebrews or Jews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? And then he says this, I'm out of my mind to talk about this. This is kind of bragging a little bit, but trying to make a point, not bragging. That's why he says, I'm out of my mind. I shouldn't be talking like this, but he's trying to get the Corinthians' attention. Then he says this, I am more. I have worked much harder. I've been imprisoned more frequently. I've been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. Do you hear what this guy is saying? I have worked harder. But then he goes on to say, I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged, which means beaten more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times, five separate times, I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. That means he was whipped, flogged, where they hit you 40 lashes, but they thought 40 might be too dangerous, so they took one off to be safe. 39th. Gee, thanks, right? Three times I was beaten with rods. So he was whipped, and what's a rod? Uh, Let me give you an idea. Take probably a piece of uh, dowel, maybe a half an inch to three-quarter inch dowel. You know, let's make that baby about six feet long. And then you stand right there, and we're going to take that thing, and we're just going to go as hard as you can on a bare skin and smacked on You think about what that would feel like to get hit with a, a hardwood dowel rod that actually, when you swing, will bend and snap pretty good. He said, three times I was beaten with rods. Once, I was pelted with stones. Paul was actually stoned for what he believed. Three times, I was shipwrecked. Guy didn't have very good luck, does he? He's journeying to go tell people about Jesus, and he's shipwrecked three different times. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. In one of those shipwrecks, it's a night and a day. Think about that. All night long and all the next day floating in in the sea. I've been constantly on the move. If you read Paul's life, he's not telling stories here. This is actually the way it was. He was never in one place for very long. He went from place to place to place, constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles. In danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. 
I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, if that's not enough. Now look what he says next. I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying, on top of all that, I can't explain to you, but the weight and the pressure that I carry because of all those people, all the churches, all the believers in Christ, to make sure that they're okay and growing in their faith. He says, who is weak in the faith and I don't feel weak? Who is led into sin and I don't inwardly burn? He carried this immense burden for the people that God had called him to reach. Give you a little more clarification. Acts chapter 14, recording this. It says, Then some Jews, this is the, the, the details about his stoning. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. In other words, they got the crowd to go nuts. And they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Let that sink in for a second. These people came from another city to the city he was in. They got the crowd to go nuts saying he deserves to be stoned. So right then and there, they put him in one spot. And what's stoning? Literally what it says. They pick up big chunks of stone. The person's standing there, and you just start throwing those things. And how long? They threw them, and they threw them, and they threw them, and Paul collapsed, and they kept throwing, and they kept throwing, and they kept throwing stones until what? They were confident that he was dead. They were so confident that they grabbed his body, his limp body, and they dragged him out of the city and they left him for dead. But he wasn't. And he recovered. The Bible doesn't tell us how long it took him to recover from that. Look what he writes to Timothy. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I'm suffering as I am. All that suffering he talked about, all those hardships, all the torture, all the beatings, all the imprisonments, all the shipwrecks, all the, the, the cold and naked and, and unfed, all those things, the reason was he was suffering is because he had been appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher of the gospel. That's not going to swell the ranks of people that are willing to go and tell others, is it? But Paul is honest about where he's been and what he said. And then, this is that's, for, that's 2 Timothy, you see, 11 and 12. He clearly makes it, he makes it clear that his suffering was because of his beliefs and his insistence on telling other people what he had known to be true about Jesus. But I want to continue on. But you realize this, that in the midst of all that, Paul had a confidence and an assurance even in the midst of his suffering, his persecution, and the pressure of shepherding and teaching people to follow God in a real and authentic way. I've not been imprisoned. I've not been beaten. I haven't gone hungry. I haven't had any of these things at all. And I can't imagine what it's like. The only thing I can semi-relate to, but not even close to what Paul had, was that pressure. There's something real to that. When God has called you to shepherd and care for people and to teach and to train, there's a weight that comes on with that if you're worth the call and you embrace the call for the right reasons. I feel that weight. 
That's why I'm sharing this message with you this morning, how important it is for you to have a solid assurance and confidence in what you believe. Your spiritual life depends on it, and the spiritual life of the culture around you depends on that, that you have confidence. There's a weight on that, to do this well, to make it clear, to be a good example. And Paul says, the reason I'm suffering is because of the weight that I carry in sharing the gospel. But Paul had this great confidence and assurance, even in the midst of all, all that, and, 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 and those things there. And this is what he says further on in that passage. That's why I'm suffering as I am. Now I like this. Yet this is no cause for shame. It would be easy, humanistically speaking, to look at Paul's life and saying, dude, is a failure. He's in prison all the time. He's getting beaten. You know, that's not the way you go and win the masses. But Paul says, that's why I'm suffering, yet this is no cause for shame or to shrink back. Now notice what he says next. Look, get this. The reason that was not a cause for shame and the reason he goes forward, he says, because I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted him until that day. You can just read the line from that song. You can sing that song. You can read that scripture. But if you don't take time to think about the context of the guy who said it, it doesn't have the power that it's supposed to have. He's saying, I endure all of this and will continue. Why? Because I know whom I believed in. And I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. You see, Paul was not ashamed. He even writes that. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't care if people beat me, do whatever else, malign me, ridicule, make fun of me, minimize me. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not because he was so learned. It says what? Because I know whom I believed in, and I am persuaded that he is able. He had proven some things out in his life. He's not ashamed, even in the midst of suffering and persecution, even in the midst of ridicule and accusations from the very people he was attempting to help. Paul was a Jew of Jews. He even said that if it was possible for him to take on the sin of the Jews so that they would be converted, he would do it because his heart was so much for his own people. It had to tear him up to go into city after city after city and to go to the synagogue first and teach the Jews about Jesus only to have them reject it and then turn to the Gentiles. Because we can say that he didn't really care about the Jews. He absolutely did. I'm sure it tore him up that his, his own people rejected Jesus. Even in the midst of all that. And the very people he's trying to help were ridiculing and making fun of him. He wasn't embarrassed. And he didn't feel any guilt because of his actions or his beliefs and his relationship with Jesus. He wasn't reluctant to continue to fulfill God's call on his life because he didn't, he didn't shy away because he was afraid of persecution and punishment. No, he continued to go at it with full force. He wasn't reluctant to continue to teach about Jesus and to train people to walk in relationship with him even though many around him tried to humiliate and make fun of him and make his life miserable. Why? Could he be that way? After all, Paul was just a man. How can you do that? 
How can you be persecuted and beaten and maligned and actually go and talk to people and have them snub you and pushed away? How can you do that day after day knowing what goes after, comes after you as a mere man? How can you do that and then before the Lord feel the pressure and the weight of the obligation to tell? Again, why? Because Paul was convinced. He knew whom he believed in. Paul knew God. Paul knew Jesus. Jesus revealed himself to him. There's something significant. There's, there's that event we know for sure in Acts that Jesus shows up on the Damascus road and he hears the voice. But Paul, in his letters, if you'll read through in the book of Acts as he's writing about these things and some of his reflections back, it appears that Jesus also appeared to him at another time and really unloaded the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to him. Paul talks about that. He talks about the apostles like James and John and Matthew and all the other guys who actually saw Jesus face to face. Peter, or not Peter, Paul never saw Jesus in the flesh. But he did say, he appeared to me like he appeared to the apostles and unloaded those things. Paul knew God, had an active, vibrant relationship with God. Paul knew Jesus and had an active, ongoing, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul had placed his belief and trust in God and he trusted fully in the work of Jesus on the cross. He trusted the teachings of Jesus even though they were tremendously controversial at the time. He believed them. He trusted in those teachings and built his life on them. Paul staked his very life, his physical life, and his whole <coughs> staked his whole life on his relationship with God and with Jesus Christ. You could say that he placed his full confidence in God's truth and his promises. All of that was a choice that Paul had to make. Paul had to exercise his choice, his will to make that decision. Paul's choice or decision moved him to continually act on that decision to apply God's truth in his life and to actually tell others. Paul, over and over again, from the time of his conversion until the time of his death, was consistently putting God's truth and his principles to test in his own life. And he says this, I know whom I believe in, and I am convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him. That's a powerful statement from somebody who had been beaten and shipwrecked and had gone through terrible, terrible trials. I know that my treasure or whatever I'm entrusting to him, my very reputation and all this stuff is safe with him. He trusted his life, his reputation, his safety, his security, his well-being to God. And you're saying, wait a minute, he trusted his safety and his security and his well-being and yet he gets beaten and stoned and almost killed and shipwrecked and all that. He said, God didn't look out for him. <laughs> Paul says this too. This is where reading your whole Bible is so important to understand the things that Paul, Paul said this. For me to live is Christ and die is gain. 
And he wasn't being fickle. See, Paul recognized that he put his security and his trust in God, but he also realized that God was not guaranteeing an easy life for what he was called to do. Basically, what he's saying is, if God chooses to keep me alive and keep me going, keep me healthy enough to do this, to live as Christ, there's benefit for the kingdom of God for me to stay because I tell more people and train more people. He says, but boy, I'll tell you, to die would be great gain because my flesh and my humanity would just as soon be done with all of this hardship. But he's simply saying, what he's simply saying is, that's what I want in my flesh. I want to go and be with Jesus. But you know what? If he calls me to stay, no matter how hard it is, there's gain. There's kingdom gain in that. Great maturity he shows. Paul was persuaded by what he had experienced personally and the life that he had lived and the commitments he had made. He had gotten to a spot that his commitments and the fruit out of those commitments, not the physical things, but the inner things, the peace with God, the strength and all that stuff there, he was saying, I wouldn't trade it for anything. That's why he continued to move in those directions. He was sure, he was sure that he was sure that he was sure and confident that God's way was the only way to true joy, to true peace, to true satisfaction, and to eternal life. And when you look at the life of Paul, pre-conversion, post-conversion, that's a solid statement right there. He was a prestigious man before he came to Christ. A Pharisee of Pharisees, been trained by the best. Who knows where he would have gone in Jewish leadership as a Pharisee if he didn't come get converted, if he stayed that route. But in his experience after being converted to Christ, he realized that following Jesus and following his truths was the way to true peace, true joy, true satisfaction, and true fulfillment that he did not find in the same way in his previous life. Paul was free from doubts and free from fear that he might be on a wild goose chase. Some of the biggest, most powerful characters in the whole Bible have moments of doubt. John the Baptist sends one of his disciples to talk to Jesus. When John's in prison, facing execution, he comes back and saying, after he's the one, right? John the Baptist, remember, he's the one that points, oh, there's the Lamb of God, the one that God told us about, the Messiah who takes away the sin of the world. And then when he goes to baptize, Jesus says, baptize me. He says, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. He had this moment where he saw and knew his Messiah, but yet when he's facing imprisonment, he has doubt, and he sends his disciples, and they ask Jesus, John needs to know, are you the one? Are you the Messiah, or should we be looking for somebody else? And Jesus in compassion says, you go tell him what you've seen. The poor are taken care of and have the gospel preached to them. And they went back, and I'm sure that was great reassurance to John the Baptist. Elijah, in the Old Testament, takes on the prophets of Baal. Story, powerful, miraculous. Wow, top of the thing there. And then, and then prays, and, and what happens? The clouds on the horizon, all that stuff. Then he runs back, and the next scene is what? He's, in a, he's, in a, he's all by himself in the wilderness. He's flooding it because he's afraid. He's alone. And he's saying, God, I'm all alone. I'm the only one left. Oh, God, I'm the only one left that serves you. And God says, 
kindly, feeds him and does all things. Oh, by the way, I've got this many hundreds that, I've, that are still faithful like you are. I'm sure that, that Paul had his moments where he probably had some doubt once in a while. Am I on a wild goose chase? But we can tell by his faithfulness to the fact that he was actually killed for his faith in the end that he never faltered. If he had doubts, in the end, his confidence was strong and he had assurance that grew over time that he wasn't on a wild goose chase. Every time that Paul was in a pinch, God came through. Not the way that you and I would want him to come through. I'm sure it would have been nicer if before the stones flew, God showed up. Or before the ship gets wrecked, the storm magically goes away. But that didn't happen with Paul. But you realize Paul was left for dead, but didn't die. He went without food, but didn't starve to death. He was thrown in jail, but got out. He was beaten, but didn't have any long-term or bad enough to keep him from preaching the gospel. He continued on and on and on and on. Every time he was in a pinch or in something, God came through until his time was up. And then he was killed. Each time, Paul took an unpopular stance as far as the culture or the religion was concerned, taking a risk to obey God, he, he reaped a tremendous result in his own personal life because he saw God's faithfulness and he knew deep down inside that he was doing the right thing. And I can't explain this to you other than the fact that I know it's true in my own heart and I've told you before to lay your head on the pillow at night to know that you've been honest and forthright and have told the truth to the people around you regardless of what they do with it. There's peace in that. That gives you grace to go to sleep and to wake up and do it again the next day, even if nobody reacts. Paul had that times a hundred because of the way he lived his life. He had become absolutely convinced that God was more than able, not just enough to barely get him through, that God could do anything that was needed to keep and preserve him in the midst of danger, to enable him to continue to walk in obedience. Until when? Until the time for him to go home to his real home, heaven, with God, and see Jesus face to face. And that's why Paul stayed faithful to the very end, because he knew that he had an appointed time and an appointed call, and he was safe and secure. He had learned it over time that nothing was going to change. He was going to make it through until his job was done, and then he would go to be with Jesus. He just didn't know how that was going to happen. I want everybody that hears this message to have that kind of confidence. That kind of belief and that kind of assurance. To know that God will take care of all that concerns you. That you know that you know that you know, even when you're afraid and have a little bit of doubt, but there's another part of you that kicks in in that moment that says, no, God's got it. He's going to take care of me. That God will be with you through everything that you go through, even if you suffer and are persecuted and ridiculed and go through hardship because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you would not waver in your trust and your belief and your assurance of that in the midst of those things. And I want all of us to have a confidence and a belief and assurance that God will be true to his promise to never leave us and to never forsake us ever. Even in death, he's promised to be with us. Because when we die, 
That's the ultimate of him being with us because he takes us by the hand and leads us from this side to the other where all of a sudden we see Jesus face to face and all sin is gone and all persecution is gone and all things are made right. For how long? For all eternity. We are so temporally minded. We get so wrapped up with the things of this world. And I'm no different than you are. Please understand that. And I'm not saying that we should just dig a little hole and forget about the things of the world. We still have lives. We're called to do things. There's things that we do here on earth that are meaningful and valuable. But we have to recognize how temporally minded we are. and We get so wrapped up with the things that aren't going to last that we forget the importance of the things that are eternal. And I want us to to gain a confidence and assurance that we base all of our lives out of the things that are eternal. The things that last forever. And we give our best to those things and let the other things fall by the wayside and have the time that's left over for them. How do you, how do you develop the kind of belief and confidence that Paul had? How do you do that? I'm going to tell you first off, ready? First of all, that confidence is developed over time. You can have a dramatic conversion experience that totally and dramatically changes the way you live your life. But your assurance and your confidence and your trust and your faith in God should be increasing all the way up until the day that you see Him face to face. The seeing Him face to face is the culmination of a growth in trust that finalizes that. It takes time, but not time that's spent idly doing nothing. If you idly do nothing spiritually, your faith will diminish, your trust and your assurance will diminish, it will not grow stronger. No, it's time spent actively pursuing God's truths and seeking to apply those truths in your life. If you spend time and invest your life into following, understanding God's truths and following those truths, your confidence, your assurance, and your boldness, and your belief, and your trust in God will grow over time. Guaranteed. Guaranteed it will. How about some other insights from Paul? Well, I think Paul. Who knows? There's controversy in Romans. Who wrote Romans? Paul? I don't know. Paulus? I don't know. Nobody knows. But I'll tell you, I can say this. This passage, at least here, sounds an awful lot like something that Paul would write. So if he didn't, he would be willing to maybe paraphrase it and write it in his own. I mean, just simply saying, it doesn't matter who wrote it, but it definitely fits with the things that Paul would have said. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Sound familiar, youth? Tuesday night, who's going to know it? (laughs) We're memorizing that one together. I may say we. I've got work to do too before Tuesday night. Um, Like I said, don't know if Paul wrote that, but in the context of what we shared this morning, it could be. And it fits right with what he's saying. All right? He says this. Offer, how, do you, how do you get that kind of confidence? Paul, whoever wrote that is telling us, giving instruction. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. What does that mean? Give your all to God. Give him everything. Every part of you. Don't worry 
Scripture tells us, don't worry about what people might do to you. Persecution, death, imprisonment. Don't worry about it. The scripture says, don't worry about what man can do because they can only touch your physical body. What you should be fearing is God who can not only destroy your physical body but also sentence you to damnation and hell, your spiritual life for eternity. Don't worry about what man can do. Offer yourself fully to God. Don't worry about what people will say about you. Because I'm going to tell you, if you take a stance to walk out God's truth and you start telling other people about that truth, you're going to catch flack. People are going to say you're radical. You're taking things too seriously. Even Christians might say that to you. Taking this too seriously. You're going overboard. You've got a screw loose. You're, you're just, you know, there'll be a hundred things. And, and, then, and then maybe when you're not around, they're making fun of you. Don't worry about what people will say to you, whether they ridicule you, malign you, falsely accuse you, or reject you because you're following God's truth. Be willing, offering your bodies, be willing to pour it out for God as a living offering to Him, and think about Paul. Paul gave everything and poured out his whole life, his whole being, as an offering to God. And it immediately, that idea of sacrifice should bring to mind the Old Testament sacrifice system. No, I'm not telling you to put your body on the altar and have your neck slit and bleed for Jesus. It's, it's figurative in that sense. But give everything. Willing to give your very life for God's service. Like wine that's poured out over the altar in the Old Testament. Lavishly giving God everything. The most valuable things you have. To give Him your obedience and applying His truth in your own life. It's a sacrifice. When you choose, you open your Bible, or you hear a truth, and you get this level of understanding, and you make that commitment. Oftentimes, people never, other people never see this, see that transaction. But you know that you know that God just showed you something, and you're saying, I commit myself to do that. I commit myself to walk in that. When you do that, it's just like, it's actually better than the sacrifices that were given in the Old Testament where they would slay an animal and burn it on the altar and the smoke would rise to heaven it would be pleasing to God. When you obey God's truth with reckless abandon to not care about what it costs you, that wafts to heaven and it's very pleasing to your Heavenly Father. Your diligence and to tell other people about life in Jesus Christ is a sacrifice that pleases God. Because if you start telling people about Jesus, some are going to be excited that you told them, other people are going to be angry and frustrated and make fun of you. It could even cost you relationships. Heaven forbid, it costs you relationship because you have a bad attitude when you tell them. But when you share in the love of Jesus, Jesus Christ actually, in loving people perfectly and telling people lost relationships because of what he was telling them to be obedient. How much more is that going to happen to us? But I'm telling you, when you tell other people with reckless abandon, not caring what people think about you, that is a sacrifice and offering that's pleasing to your Heavenly Father. The writer goes on and says this, also, don't be conformed to this world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't live your life like everybody else around you who doesn't know Jesus. Don't do it. 
If you do that, you will never be assured of what you believe in. And you will absolutely be tossed by everything that comes along the world, culturally, worldwide. You will, have, you will not, never have peace, you'll never have joy, and you'll never have satisfaction if you choose to do what everybody else around you is doing. Don't do it. Don't live like everybody else around you who claim to be followers of Jesus, but then don't do what he said. And I write there, and I probably should put that in quotes again, who claim to be followers of Jesus. Because Jesus says if people really love him, the test was always what? Obedience to what he said. Don't, just because somebody says they're a Christian, don't model your life after them unless they are doing the things that Jesus said. Paul said that, follow me as what? As I follow Jesus. He wasn't standing on his own merit for people to follow him, although a good model. He's saying, only follow me as you see me following Christ. And we should do the same. It's okay to look for an example in a human being who's following Christ, but only if they're being obedient to the things that Jesus says. Ask God to renew your mind. Ask Him to do it. What does that look like? Ask Him to change the way you think from your human thinking so that you start thinking God thoughts. Ask Him to help you to trust His ways above the ways of the world. Ask Him to develop in you an unshakable belief and faith in God and His ways. And the writer goes on and says this, that when we, what? We're no longer conformed to the world and we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. He says this, it's then that we will what? That we will be able to test and prove that God's way works. If you wait, if you wait for God's ways to be proven before you put them into application in your life, you will never get there. Ever. It will not happen. There's a thing called faith. We have to willingly step out and walk in obedience and apply God's truths, and it's then that we prove in our own lives that His way works. I can teach. I can explain. I can do all these things. I can even give you six steps. But if you don't put them into action, you will never develop confidence and faith. It will not happen. Because the confidence and the faith and the trust and the belief that we're talking about is a byproduct of having applied those things in our life and have them tested in, our, in, in the fabric of our own life over time. And I know that my belief in the things of God are stronger now than ever before. I still, I'll be honest with you, there are moments in these straight thoughts that go through my mind thinking, what if this really is a wild goose chase? I mean, I stake my whole life on this. I stand up and, and declare like I am today these truths. What if it's really not real? And then for a moment I go, that's ridiculous. That's a ridiculous thought. That is absolutely fleshly thinking a hundredfold. And all it does is redouble my efforts to put these things into application in my life. Why? Because I walked long enough away from God 
to know that the things I felt then and the peace, joy, satisfaction that were fleeting at best and the misery I had in my life, that this, I say over and over again, I don't know how people make it through life without a relationship, an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. How in the world can you have somebody tragically taken from you, a loss of a loved one, and walk through that without faith in knowing Jesus Christ? I don't know. How can you go through loss of a job, the uncertainties of the future, without knowing the end of the story through Jesus Christ? It's then, when we put these things into application, that we'll know that His ways work. We'll be able to say, like Paul does, that we know, and I know in my heart, that God is able to keep what I've committed to Him. When I put my reputation and my life in him for protection it's safe and it doesn't matter what anybody says or what anybody thinks because in the end it's what god thinks that matters it's then that our obedience leads to true joy peace satisfaction and security and it's also then that just like paul we can boldly declare that we're convinced and we know that what we believe is real, and I'm telling you, and I've said this before, authority is not in a loud voice or in a powerful demeanor or being the biggest, strongest, best at something. That's not authority. Spiritual authority is when you and I make a firm declaration of something that we've proven in our own life that we know that we know is real. And you can say that in a whisper to somebody, and it has punch. It goes right to the heart and a person knows that the person that just said that and what was just said is real and it's true. They still have a choice to make whether they're going to acknowledge that and walk that out there. But the most powerful statements I've ever heard people say were not from the most eloquent of speakers or the best laid out argument. It's when a person was declaring something with confidence that God had proven in their own life. One more insight from a different person. King David, Old Testament. Another guy who had suffered a great deal. Who had, in his suffering, in his, in his walk, had tested the ways of God and was sure of them. David was called from being a shepherd, literally a shepherd, to being the shepherd of God's people, the king. God called him a man after his own heart, yet he also really messed up in a lot of ways. I just got done, in our, actually if you've been going through our two-year Bible reading, uh, within the last month, month and a half, we've been reading about David, and I'm like, man, oh man, this guy with man after God's own heart, woo, was he ever off in a lot of areas. I mean, and not just, you know, we know he's you know, guilty of adultery and murder, but then even some of the stuff, the blind spots in his own family. It's like, wow! But yet... David's, and then he's fleeing for his life a lot. You know, when you read through that, how long was David actually just you know comfortably safe in the city as a king? And how much time did he spend running around out in the wilderness for his life? I think that there was probably a lot more equal in those two timetables than we think. But yet, look what David says. I love it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let that sink in for a second. This is a guy who's, again, how do I tell people? 
how do, I, how do I get this message across to people? And as common as this, just, just taste and see that the Lord is good. Then he goes on, Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you as holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. And the beautiful thing about this, these aren't just words. When he goes on and says, taste and see that the Lord is good, this is a man who had done that. I have tasted and I have seen that the Lord is good and it would do you good to do the same. Then he goes on and saying, oh, by the way, take refuge in him. And if you read the Psalms of David, that's a common theme for him. I cried out to you. You are my refuge, my strength, the very present help in time of need, over and over again. Fear the Lord, you his holy people. For those who fear him lack nothing. What did David's fear of the Lord look like? In that same series of stories, he goes, and it's, and I, again, don't ask me how to explain this because it's, it's in the version that we're reading in, our, in, one of the, in my Bible app, when he decided he was going to take a census. And the wording in different versions almost make it sound, it can sound like God tricked him into doing it, which I, I, I'm not going to say, I don't think that was the case. I don't know what happened. Not sure. But it was not something he was supposed to do. He's probably taking a census to find out how many military guys he had because he was looking at strengths and numbers instead of looking at God to be his, that's my best paraphrase on that. But he goes and does it, even though his generals and the people around him said, don't do this thing. Don't do this thing. You don't need to do this. They sensed it was wrong, but he said, no, do it. So they did it anyhow. And God's judgment comes upon him, and he, and he says, you're going to pay a price. The people are going to pay a price. And he gave them the three choices there. What, you, can, you can have a deadly pestilence, you can have your enemies come down upon you, or a natural disaster. I don't know what the three things are. But, but Paul, Peter, David's sitting there thinking in this idea of, of look at fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. His response is, I would rather have the angel of the Lord come to bring judges on it because I'd rather put myself at the mercy of God than the mercy of people. You know what that comes from? That comes from a man who knows that the, I can trust God above all else. And if I have to be judged, and if I have to pay a penalty, I'd rather have be directly at the hand of God than rather through some foreign heathen person. Fear of the Lord lack nothing. And isn't it interesting that when that happens, when God is about ready to wipe Jerusalem off the map, he says, no, that's enough, and stops. David is qualified to make this challenge because of the life that he lived. And I want to encourage you, taste and see that the Lord is good. Many of you know, I don't like vegetables very much. And my wife and my daughter laugh at me constantly because they can tell by the way I chew something and the way I eat it whether I like it or not because it's written all over my face. But when I went to China to pick up Emily, I don't know, this is the weirdest thing in the thing. Guess who was the one that sampled almost all those delectable meals we had? I did. I don't know why I wasn't afraid to try them. Sometimes it was just two bites and that was enough and tell people kind of what it tasted like and then they could make their own decisions. But I'm simply saying this. How do you taste and see if something's good? By jumping in and committing to live a life of obedience to God and entrusting all that you have to them. You are never going to know if you really like a certain kind of food until you eat it. You've probably seen that with your kids. Put a spoon in front. No. 
No, and you know that they're going to like it because it's maybe some kind of dessert. No, no. And then you finally get just a little bit on their lip. And then they have a hard time admitting that it's actually good and then they want more and more and more. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The way you're going to know that is by actually taking his truths and applying them in your life. There is no other way to taste and see that the Lord is good than to ingest his truth and apply it in your life. And now we're right back to where we started from. Do you believe that what you believe is really real? What is your level of confidence and assurance that what you believe is real? Is your belief strengthening? If you look back at the last few months of your life, last three months, last six months, last year of your life, are you becoming stronger and more confident in your belief in God and who He is and what He says? Is it kind of on an even keel? Or do you have more questions now than you had a month ago or three months ago? If it's strengthening, you're on the right track. If it's neutral, not changing or going the other way, I'm going to say the, the prescription to write for you is you start, you start ingesting God's truth and not looking at what the world has to say. Oftentimes, our belief fades when we start taking in too much of what the world has to say. Developing a belief that we're talking about in such a faith like a Paul had, like a David had, having that ready is, in, was in, is within the reach of anybody listening. Paul was just a man. David was just a man. Elijah was just a man. All those people were just men. And Deborah was just a woman. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, was just a woman. No different than you and I. Nothing special other than had hearts that tested what God said by putting it into application. Developing confidence is within reach of anyone who will give themselves to wholeheartedly obey God's truth and His ways. And I can't tell you strong enough, that is what I want for you. is for you to apply those things and to know that you know that you know that long after, if we are separated and could never see each other ever again, you and me, that you would walk away saying, I know what I know, and nobody's ever going to convince me otherwise because of what I know in my heart from applying that. I want you to have confidence, assurance in what you believe, and with that will come freedom from fear. You will not fear the things of the world when you have confidence of the God who's in charge. When you have confidence in what he says. When you have confidence in what he says and how it's going to roll out. It doesn't make it worse. It actually makes it better and the fear dissipates because you know that this is all part of his plan and he's accomplishing what he does. And you know that God has you in the palm of his hands and when he asks you to do something, you can go out and do that regardless of what the results and what anybody thinks of you. That's what I want for you. I'm going to turn things to Jeff in a minute, but I would like to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to share this morning. I thank you for the privilege that you've given me of being able to be a pastor or a shepherd of this flock. Lord, I pray that anybody that's partaking of this message or other messages or who calls Grace Community Church their home or tunes into our messages or, or, or we have contact with, Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that they would taste and see that the Lord is good. 
that they would, would, would come across a belief and a confidence and an assurance in who you are, that your ways work, Lord, that comes from having applied these things in their life. Lord, give us each the discipline, the diligence to take you at face value, to, to, to read and to see what you say, and then to actually do those things in our life and be looking at the results and using that as the test. Lord, I pray that you would help us to stop listening to what the world tells us how the world reasons its way around things. Help us to stop giving that credence in our own hearts. And Lord, help us to have hearts that are sold out to you. And Lord, I pray, I pray for an army of people, even here in southern Jefferson County, in Jefferson County, New York, Lord, an army of people who would have such rock-solid faith and assurance and trust that they're so firmly rooted in Jesus Christ and his teachings that there's nothing that this world could send their way that would cause them to shy away from you or to fall, but that we would be beacons of light and anchors for people to latch onto in the storms that are coming. Lord, I pray that we would prepare for action now and not wait till it's too late. And Lord, give us boldness and confidence to share this truth with others and not worry about what people think. Help us to be like Paul, that we give our whole life to going and telling and doing what you say in our everyday life. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Closing is going to be a little different today. Um, one thing that I want to say, though, is if you're new to faith and you're like, if you're wondering, how do I, how do I get to know God? How do I get into His Word? The worship team, by the way, can come up. Sorry, it's going to be different, but not that different. Okay. Um, one thing that I was just reminded of in the in the information center, we have a um, little booklet called Our Daily Bread, and that was a good start for me. And really what that is, is it's the daily Bible reading and then someone's words just to kind of encourage. And so if you're in a spot where you're going, I don't, I don't know how to get into the Bible. I don't know what to do about this. I would encourage you to look into that resource that is free on the information um, center. And now what we're going to do, we don't usually do this. Oh, is it working? Okay. We're going to recite together what's called the Apostles' Creed, as we talk about do you believe what you believe is really real? And so the reason why I'm here is because I don't want to be in, a way, in the way or a distraction, and so I'm going to read the first line, and then I want you guys to join with me in this, and I'm counting on those of you who grew up in this tradition to read it nice and loudly, okay? And so if you guys would stand, I'll start us with the first line. <clears throat> I believe in God, you guys join me, sorry. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven.